So today I wanted to look into the role of the mass media in shaping American democracy. Um, the media has been considered a cornerstone of American democracy since the time of our founding fathers. In describing the media, Thomas Jefferson said, the basis of our governments being the opinion of the people, the very first object should be to keep that right. And were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. So what really makes the media so powerful then is just the fact that it's inherently one of the most undemocratic aspects of one of the most democratic societies. So while Americans can have a say in the other three branches of government, the First Amendment protects the autonomy of the media. Um, so people don't really have the same amount of oversight in controlling the media that they do with our government. But it can still be just as, if not more powerful than these other forms of government, which is why it's worth looking into. Um, it's actually sometimes referred to as the fourth estate, which points to the influence and scope that it has in shaping citizens' beliefs and understandings about what's going on in society in much of the same way as the other three branches of the government. Um, 18th century English philosopher David Hume once said, the success of those who govern relies on the public opinion of those who are governed. So in other words, in order for a successful government to maintain its power, it has to maintain the public's opinion and gain support of their constituents somehow. And the media really provides a perfect outlet to do this. But this brings up a really interesting question. Does the public opinion control the media or does the media control the public opinion? It's easy to forget or maybe just not acknowledge just how influential the media is in shaping the way we think and engage in politics. And that's probably because it's so prevalent in everyday life, whether it's paid advertisements, billboards, newspapers, or social media. But no matter what, I don't think there's any denying how powerful the media is in shaping public opinion. I really wanted to focus on the media's role during the Cold War, which lasted from 1947 to 1991. There's no doubt that the scope of the media is even greater during times of political tension, which is definitely represented in the Cold War. This was a time filled with a lot of political tension, both in America and abroad. So during this time, the U.S. saw communism as the greatest threat to the nation and did everything they could to contain its spread. They especially focused their efforts on communicating messages of anti-communism throughout the whole nation, and this eventually led to a Red Scare during the late 1940s and early 1950s in the U.S., so this Red Scare was just this widespread belief that international communism was somehow operating in the U.S., and it really reflected the peak of anti-communist hysteria in America. Um, this Red Scare led to the government taking actions to address this perceived threat of communism in America in ways that were really questionable and ultimately changed American politics for years to come which is why it provides a really interesting look and perspective into the ways in which the media can shape democracy. So the anti-communist message that was being spread took a lot of different forms. Um, posters, radio broadcasts, newspaper publications, pamphlets, and even children's books. 
And the message that was being communicated was one, that communism was this absolute and unqualified evil. And two, that communist leaders were trying to impose this evil on the rest of the world. This anti-communist hysteria was promoted through the media to such a great extent that it seemed as though it really shaped this really deep concern among Americans regarding the threats of communism. Um, These fears essentially made Americans more vulnerable to the kinds of infringements on their individual liberties that would take place during the Cold War. Um, These were usually in the form of government action that was taken to address this perceived threat of communism. And they restricted things like free speech and free association and freedom of um, just being able to express different ideas or believe different things. In 1954, there was a poll that was taken that really indicated these widespread attitudes of anti-communism and this vulnerability to um, infringements on individual liberties. So the poll revealed that 74% of respondents believed there were communists in the actual government in Washington. It also revealed that over 65% of respondents agreed on a few things. So that the government should have the right to listen in on people's private conversations as a way to get evidence against communists, um, that communist publications should be banned and removed from libraries, and that identified communists should have their American citizenship revoked. So these are really alarming statistics, um, specifically just the fact that people were willing to deny one another of many of the basic civil liberties that make up um, America's democratic society. Fear really seemed to be the driving factor in the type of propaganda that was dispersed to the American public through the media. Um, We can see the publication of different books, movies, and magazine publications that increasingly began to focus more of their content on anti-communism. In 1945, George Orwell published one of his most famous books, Animal Farm, which in a nutshell tells the story of a group of animals attempting to overthrow their human farmer and establish a more free and equitable society. So this book has very clear indications of anti-communist undertones, and it was quickly exploited by the American media as a means for attacking communist ideologies and promoting this fear. Um, In 1946, the Book of the Month Club selected Animal Farm as its must-read book, which led to it selling half a million copies throughout the U.S. And then in 1949, Reader's Digest published a condensed version of the story in all of its magazines. So with both of these um, media outlets, they really focused on and highlighted the parallels between the book's depiction of a totalitarian government and the reality of communism in places like the Soviet Union. And they were both really widely popular among middle-class Americans. So it was able to reach a larger scope of the American public at large. Um, And then in 1954, the CIA, interestingly enough, actually funded the production of Animal Farm into a film adaptation. So overall, the media was really used um, in regards to Animal Farm to situate these messages of anti-communism into the mainstream culture. And then in 1947, 
the Catechetical Guild Educational Society, which is a Catholic organization, published a graphic novel called Is This Tomorrow? America Under Communism. It put out warnings against communist infiltration into American society by describing these hypothetical series of events that would lead to communist reign in America and then the turmoil that would result um, from this reign. So the inside cover reads, the average American is prone to say, it can't happen here. Millions of people in other countries used to say the same thing. Today, they are dead or living in communist slavery. It must not happen here. So what we see in this graphic novel is a depiction of the fears of communism spreading to America that results in America um, almost going down in flames, which literally in this case, because the book cover actually shows the American flag burning. But even though this book was intended to be a little bit more dramatic towards these fears, since um, it targeted a younger audience, it did align really well with the public's opinion regarding anti-communist sentiments. So um, another poll was taken in 1946, and it asked respondents, what do you think should be done about the communists in the country? And more than a third of the respondents said that communists should actually be killed or imprisoned, which is really harsh. And um, this was only at the beginning of the Cold War. So these are just a few examples of the message of anti-communism that was spread through the media and how the message that was being spread really either promoted or contributed to the fears that were seen um, with the Red Scare and the anti-communist hysteria. At its peak, this fear was really used as a justification for the infringements that would take place on American civil liberties. So there were things like the communist crusades um, against alleged communist activity by the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC for short, um, which focused on exposing communists in America's government and um, entertainment industry. This was especially evident in the entertainment industry, where blacklists were developed as a prevalent source for um, identifying specific individuals within entertainment, so directors, actors, or producers who were supposedly related to the Communist Party in one way or another. And then out of fear for losing the support of viewers, entertainment studios would refrain from hiring individuals who were blacklisted. So even though a lot of these blacklists didn't really have substantial information to back these claims of communist um, sympathizers, they were still seen as legitimate, more so out of fear for losing support of the public. And then we also see more acts of censorship in um, limited free speech during the Cold War. So in 1919, the Supreme Court case Schneck versus United States ruled that the government could restrict free speech during times of war. And this was really used as a precedence during the Cold War to um, restrict free speech that we could see during this time. So Dennis versus United States is one of those cases, um, which was the case of... And then we get into this period of time um, that was coined as McCarthyism. So after Senator McCarthy announced he had the list of 205 names of known communists within the State Department in his hands, we see the term McCarthyism coined that same year by political cartoonist Erb Block in the Washington Post. 
Um, these accusations became headline news and put Senator McCarthy and McCarthyism at the forefront of the media. Though he didn't go without critical response, especially after it was discovered that there was no such list and um, was actually described by the Senate committee as perhaps the most nefarious campaign and half-truths and untruth in the history of this republic. But even after these ridiculous accusations were proven to be completely false, he was still highly influential in bolstering support by the public, which was indicated by um, you know, different polls that were taken during this time. And the Republican Party during this time used this to their advantage. Anti-communism became the primary platform of the Republican Party in the 1950s. And with overwhelming public approval of communist antagonism, this ultimately led to the resurgence of the party after 16 years of democratic rule. Um, and then Democrats, on the other hand, were attacked by Republicans for being too soft on communism. So Republicans became known for bread-baiting government officials or claiming them to be communists. And among them were people like McCarthy um, and his running mate, Richard Nixon. Um, and people like Harry Truman were actually widely criticized among the public due to the types of red baiting that was seen by people like McCarthy. So McCarthy considered Truman to be especially soft on communism um, after he vetoed a bill that would have required any and all organizations deemed as communists to turn over a list of all their members' names. So in this case, Truman was literally attempting to protect civil liberties by vetoing this bill, but clearly um, this protection wasn't the top priority of the rest of the government because it was overridden by an overwhelming majority. So with free speech repressed, books being banned, and communist ideology being not only feared, but so ostracized that it was dangerous, um, this anti-communist hysteria basically created the perfect setup for nearly half a decade of witch hunts to weed out communism from America and severely restrict the civil liberties of American democracy. So this was perfectly stated in Harry Truman's warning about the scaremonger tactics that were on the rise in 1951. So he said, they, referring to um, Republicans, have created such a wave of fear and uncertainty that their attacks upon our liberties go almost unchallenged. Many people are growing frightened, and frightened people don't protest. This isn't to say that Americans didn't fight back against the repression of their individual freedoms, but again, it's just really worth thinking about how much our democracy was threatened during the Cold War and the role the media played in shaping the fears and hysterias towards communism that would later justify and maybe even prompt this time of civil liberties being threatened during the Cold War. There is really no doubt that the media and the public opinion have a relationship in one way or another. So in the case of my initial question regarding the role of the media in shaping American democracy during the Cold War, it's clear that whatever the relationship, um, the media 